Again, I'm going to start us in a word of prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. We thank you for all of your divine attributes, Lord, your majesty and your, your grace and your mercy, your power, all of these things, Lord, so many more. We pray for your blessings on this day that you've given us to worship you and to, to rest in the works that you have accomplished on our behalf. We're thankful for these these psalms and these poems that you've inspired these men to write, for the blessing that they are to the church. May we use them in such a way today to where they are lifting up to our souls, but most of all that they are glorifying to you as we read your word and expound upon it and sing it back to you and each other. We pray for your blessing, the blessings of your Holy Spirit during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I explained a little bit about how, we're, how we use these psalms and how we're going to use them during this time. But the, the big point of this Sunday School series is that Sunday School, I've kind of made the point a couple times, is a time to kind of settle down from the hustle to get here and the hustle to get to church. Even if, even if you don't have kids, it's still a hustle to get here. I realize that. If you do have kids, it's even more of a hustle to get here. But you can use this time as kind of a, a time to, to get your hearts oriented in the right direction. So settle down a bit instead of coming, blasting in straight to the worship service and sitting down and try to, you know, reverently try to quiet your heart and worship God in that way. We can use this time to do that. So I think it's a good, good use of our time. It also serves as, as kind of a prelude or a, an opening act to the primary worship service. That's kind of the way that, I've, this is I think my fourth or fifth time to teach through a Sunday school series, and that's kind of the way that I write them, is kind of using this kind of a building up time or an opener to the primary worship service that we're about to do in just a second. And so, in that same way, the Psalms of Ascent did the same way for these people that were traveling to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Here you go, Jay. And not only that, they were, the Israelite men, they were making this road trip to Jerusalem. This kind of served as a playlist for this road trip. Or they had these, these feasts that they were going to. Three times a year they'd go to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. This was a command in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And so as they were ascending to Jerusalem, whether they were coming from the north or the south or wherever, they were ascending unto Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and they'd sing these songs along the way. We're going to use these in the same way. We're going to use these psalms in the exact same way that our spiritual ancestors thousands of years ago used them. Because our weekly feast day is today. We have a weekly feast. We don't have the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Weeks or Booths or anything anymore. We have a weekly feast day, the Lord's Day. It's here. And the primary worship service is about to begin. Now is the time to lift our hearts to God in Scripture and in song. And so in doing this, I want you to kind of place yourself in the same context that all these pilgrims had themselves in during this time that they were ascending to Jerusalem. We're going to be just like those traveling Israelites. Picture yourself singing these as you ascend into the Lord's dwelling place, because that's where we are on today, are today, the Lord's dwelling place. Just like they were ascending there in Jerusalem, we're ascending there right now. So briefly about last week, last week we did Psalms 120 and 121. Psalm 120 was sung at the very beginning of the journey. It's the very first psalm of ascent. Remember, it started out in a very low place. The psalmist, he wanted a life of peace, but everyone around him was for war. He was surrounded by those who were full of lies and deceit. And worst of all, 
This is the worst part. He lived separated from the people of God. He lived in Meshach and Kedar, which are kind of way north and way southeast of Israel. So spiritually more likely than physically, but he was away from the people of God. And that's, that's why he felt the most alone, because he wasn't amongst God's people. And Psalm 120 ended without any sort of resolution. It's kind of ended, I'm for peace, but they are for war. That's where it cuts off. But the relief for this comes immediately after in Psalm 121. So if you read through the end of Psalm 21 and immediately start reading in the beginning of Psalm 120, it goes, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Immediately goes to, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. So whenever they're singing these, as they're ascending, they could be reminded of these, these things. We kind of made the point last week that the hills kind of represent more, more danger here because there's uncertainty in the hills. There could be marauders or animals or things like that in the hills. So the hills could have been dangerous. But the danger of the war in the hills is not disconcerting to the psalmist because he has the mighty Lord of hosts as his help. And the emphasis here on 121 is Yahweh as protection. Remember, the main action that Yahweh does on that poem is that he keeps. That's the word that was repeated many times. Yahweh keeps, he keeps, he keeps. He's going to keep us. So none are going to be taken when the Lord is on their side. That's what we did last week. And they're singing through these psalms as they're walking. So they move on to Psalm 122. Let's read Psalm 122. A song of ascents. Of David. So, first of all, we've got David, the first one that David's written here, or that's specifically attributed to David. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. There the thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and my companions sake I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. Psalm 122 Remember, it's the third one out of 15 Psalms of Ascent, but we're in Jerusalem already. Seems like a bit early. I said three songs into a 15-song set, and we've already reached the destination. Didn't plan out the playlist for the road trip that well, huh? <laughs> but but we're, we're here. Their feet are standing within the gates of Jerusalem in the third song here. This, now, this psalm, is, it's all about Jerusalem. You see that repeated over and over, Zion and Jerusalem. This is celebrating Zion as God's chosen city. The house of the Lord is there. The thrones of David are there. Jerusalem is majestic in all of its beauty. And it's really hard for us to really understand the place of prominence that the city of Jerusalem had for an Old Testament Israelite. It really is. You get a, you get a hint of importance of it very early in Scripture, very early on when Melchizedek priest of God most high. Remember, he gives a blessing to Abraham in Genesis, I don't remember what it is, 13, 15, something like that, the reference. Melchizedek comes and gives a blessing to Abraham. Melchizedek is described as coming from Salem. It's the same city. Salem, Jerusalem, same exact city. 
before it was taken by Israel, belonged to the Jebusites. Remember, there's a group of Canaanites there. The Jebusites, and you combine the words Jebu and Salem, and you get Jerusalem. It's the same, same city. David later on brings the Ark of the Covenant there. When he brings the Ark of the Covenant, it establishes it as the capital of the kingdom. Obviously, Solomon is later going to build the temple on its highest mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And this is an understatement, but it was held in extremely high regard by faithful Israelites. Just a small sample here of scripture that extols the city itself. Read a few quotes here. I don't give you the reference, but you can talk to me afterwards if you want it. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. It's pointing to Jerusalem. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth. Second one, he chose Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens. Next, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? That's in Lamentations where um, probably Jeremiah is, is lamenting the fact that Jerusalem has been ransacked. And he said, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? That's high praise for a city, the perfection of beauty. And then even later on, after Jerusalem was destroyed, you got other laments here. It says, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. A lament specifically for the city. Next one, it says, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servant holds her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Lamenting the fact that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And then lastly... If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So, I mean, you could say the person's pronouncing a a curse to himself if he forgets the city of Jerusalem. Kind of strange. But you can see the prominence that Jerusalem had amongst faithful Israelites here. So yeah, Jerusalem is held in very, very high regard. But, but why? Why is Jerusalem held in such high regard amongst these faithful Israelites? Well, it's because this is where God's dwelling place was. Like it says in this psalm, the Lord is there. David goes on later on to describe another a- aspect of what makes Jerusalem so great. After, after he says the Lord is there, the house of God is there, the thrones of David are there. What else makes Jerusalem so great? It's that it's unified. It's unity is there. It says here that it is bound firmly together. Maybe I included that. It's bound firmly together. All of the tribes go up together as united brothers to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And then the psalm, it ends with an imperative and a declaration. Both of those things. The imperative says... That all who are going up to Jerusalem are to be praying for her peace. But it is, it's very interesting where the concern comes from. You know, it says here, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May peace be within your walls. I will say, may peace be within you. So the psalmist is praying for the peace of Jerusalem, both as a community and himself. But look where the, the danger lies here. The danger lies within the walls, not outside, within The danger for Jerusalem lies where divisions within the body of worship are starting to creep in. The danger in this psalm particularly doesn't, is not coming from outside. It's coming when there's disunity in Jerusalem, when the brothers no longer dwell together in peace. So the peace that they're praying for is unity between the people of God. 
you bound firmly together, the assembly is very strong. But when peace starts to dissipate, Jerusalem's in trouble. So David pledges to seek out the welfare of the people. Why? For the sake of the brothers and for the sake of the house of God. This points to us now. An individual must pray for peace and seek to promote the good of the assembly. That's part of our job here, to pray for peace of the assembly and to promote each other to good. See that all throughout the New Testament, too. We're supposed to build each other up, pray for unity of the body. This is the same thing the psalm's speaking of here. Because the danger lies more within than without. So that was a quick application to us today. A couple of other applications to it. On the one hand, the Old Testament Jerusalem and the joy of the Old Covenant people expressed towards her serves to remind us of the joy that we have to look forward to in the New Jerusalem that's not yet arrived. We've got a New Jerusalem in the, in the New Testament coming. Okay? That is good news for us. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's coming. Something that we look forward to. So this psalm can serve to remind us of that. And even better, this city needs no temple. Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10, and then 22 through 25 says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. Coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So we have an even better Jerusalem. As, as high, in high regard as was held by the Israelites of the, old, of the old Jerusalem and the old covenant, we as new covenant believers should be looking forward to this new Jerusalem in even greater anticipation than they look forward to whenever they're going up for their feast days. They held it in high regard, but man, we've got something better coming. A lot better. There's not, no temple. The sun's not going to shine because God's going to provide all the light. I'm looking forward to that. And so we wait for New Jerusalem with great anticipation, but we do have a form of that Jerusalem here, right now, today. That's why we're here. Paul, when describing the freedom that's offered through the covenant of grace, opposed to the slavery that is offered through the covenant of works, says in Galatians 4, verses 25 and 26, is now Hagar is Mount Sinai and Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So, if you're in the covenant of grace, if you're a member of the assembly, then you know the gladness and security that is offered in the house of the Lord. It's here today. It's the same thing the psalm is singing about, except we have the reality that's even better today. Because it's not based upon the covenant of works, it's based upon the covenant of grace. And then just very briefly, about the... Temple Mount in the Holy Land. You see, every now and then in the news cycle, you'll see uh, Jewish people and Muslim people fighting over Jerusalem. Actual physical Jerusalem today. Specifically one site called the Temple Mount that is held high in both regards amongst both religions. But we we don't have any dog in that fight. 
that's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. It's really the only true universal religion because we don't have any geographic sites that make anything more important than anything else. The gospel goes out to all nations and in the deepest corners of Guyana, it's the same as it is right now here. Our worship here is not any more important than theirs is. It's not any more important than believers that are in Israel get baptized in the Jordan River right now. It's the same. It's really the only true universal religion. So this is our Jerusalem, the weekly gathering of believers, no matter where it is across the world. This is why Hebrews makes it so important, makes it such a, an emphasis on not forsaking the, the, the gathering of the assembly. That's the same thing as that New Testament equivalent command in Deuteronomy. We read that on the first day that the males each year, three times a year, were to travel up to Jerusalem. That's the command for them to gather together. Our command is to gather together weekly. So the Hebrews passage is that parallel to the Deuteronomy passage. So let me ask you, do you wake up on each Lord's day and sing with David in verse 1 of this psalm, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Not just something you have to do, because it's expected. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Like David, do you pray for unity and peace of the church? Do you seek her good? Can you sing with John Newton, different song that we sing here, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know? And we'll quote Derek Thomas from the book that I've, I've used in a lot for this study. He says, we too should know the joy of belonging to this city. The thrill of entering the place where God's presence is known and his word supplied and his grace is promised. Let me ask you, do you know this joy? It's a magnificent joy. Let's sing about it. So if you turn there in your... Psalms of Ascent Psalter to Psalm 122. You see there that it is in, I forget what meter I put it, that it was in. I didn't put it here. 878787 with the repeated line. So if you wanted to, go to that sheet that I gave you guys. And we have some other copies if you want some. 878787 with the repeated line. The only choice that we have here is God me, O thou great Jehovah. So that's what we're going with. You might know others, but that's the only one that I know. So we're going to sing this to Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. If you don't know the tune, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it too much. I'm going to give us a little lead in and then we're going to sing it, okay? So. I was filled with joy and gladness when I heard them say to me, Let us make our pilgrim journey, then the Lord's house we will see. We were standing, we were standing in your gates, Jerusalem.
That was a blessing to you. It was to me. Moving on to Psalm 123. Psm 123. A song of a sense. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So Psalm 123 is similar to Psalm 120, the first one that we did, in that it's, it's a lament. You can see that. But it's different that, that Psalm 120 was really more of a personal lament. It's really written more of a first person where 123 is a community lament. You see, you know, more, more grouped language here, except for the first verse. You see, we and our have mercy upon us. So no sooner, remember we, in 120, 122, we're already in Jerusalem here. We've arrived. So no sooner than the immediate arrival in Jerusalem, we've got trouble. We've got trouble, we've got despondency here. We've got the, the joy of 122 that's followed by this, this lament of 123. So, so why? Why is that? But the psalm, the psalm starts out by acknowledging God's majesty and power here. Say it again. It says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are, in, who are enthroned in the heavens. God is enthroned in the heavens. It's a big statement. This is where our eyes should be fixed. That's what it says. To you I lift my eyes, who are enthroned in heaven. Notice that the word eyes here occurs four times in the first two verses. I lift up my eyes, the eyes of the servants, the eyes of a maidservant, so our eyes look to the Lord. So eyes four times in the first two verses here. The eyes, as described here, are what a person longs for. The gaze reflects the desires of the heart. So what does the heart long for here? The heart longs for the Lord our God and his mercy directed towards his people. That's the longing of the heart here. That's what the gaze is fixed upon. Please give us your mercy, O God. The psalmist is waiting expectantly for God to act. The psalmist is going to keep his eyes fixed upon the majestic and powerful one until his mercy rains down. He's not going to look away. He's waiting patiently, waiting trustingly for God to act because God's help is needed. This need for mercy prompts the singers to then call out to God in a desperate prayer. The proud and the arrogant. You know, whether this doesn't really say here, whether this is Gentiles or Israelites. This could have been Israelites. They made it to Jerusalem after all. 
All of these people who are proud and arrogant, these people that are living this easy life, they're holding God's people in contempt and bombarding them with scorn. So God, God, we need your help. We need mercy from our God who has promised to show us mercy. This reminds me that prayer, and I need to be reminded of this many, many times, is a vastly important part of the life of a member of God's family. When troubles arise, we are to bring them into the throne room of God. Like the hymn that we sing, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Simple song. Good reminder. That is supposed to be our norm, the norm for the children of God. Although first look, look how the psalmist here opens up his prayer. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. This is the exact same way that Jesus opens up the model prayer, which Pastor Thomas is going to get to in the next few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. The psalmist opens up, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, Jesus opens up his prayer, our Father in heaven. Same opening, same opening here. Our prayers here, they are to open with adoration to God and the affirmation that his will is to be accomplished before our requests are brought forth. Now, there's, I'm going to be wrong, there's no, no problem with a spontaneous prayer where you immediately call out to God for help. There's nothing wrong with that. But in general, the general pattern for prayer is adoration first. Adoration to God. Oh God, you are majestic and powerful. You are enthroned in the heavens. May your will come forth before mine. And so, whenever you bring forth this prayer, you can then immediately follow it. Like the tax collector does. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now they don't call themselves sinners in 123. It's the same thing that they're saying though. God be merciful to us. Same prayers as the prayer of the tax collector. God be merciful to me. God be merciful to us. And remember he gave, he looks up into heaven whenever he says that too, the tax collector. The same way our eyes are supposed to be fixed upon God until he has mercy upon us. He repeats it again there. The end of verse 2 says, Till he has mercy upon us. Then immediately in verse 3, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. So a quick application to Christians today. Throughout history, the church has been under threat from those who hold power. That's true then. It's true in the psalmist's time. It was true immediately after the death of Jesus. It's been true thousands of years. It's still true today. Those who are at ease look to the church with scorn and contempt. This describes most of the world and most of our current society in America. It's completely true. So how then are we to respond? We are to turn to God in prayer, begging him for mercy, the same way the psalmist does here. But at the same time, we turn to him knowing that he will hold us fast until the end, even if the mercy comes in a way that we would not have envisioned it. So whenever we pray, we pray that God's will would be done. Remember that. And that our wills would be joined together with his wills. So the mercy may not come in the way that we think the mercy should come. But God has promised us to show us mercy and to work together, work all things for our good, our eternal good. Even if we may not be able to see it. You've got to trust him, though. In order to keep ourselves from despair, you have to keep your eyes fixed upon the one who is in the highest of high places. Remember, he's enthroned of the heaven, in the heavens. He's majestic and powerful. And he's the one from where our help comes. 
Remember that the psalm last week, our help comes from the Lord. When we lift our eyes to see the dangers of the hills, we remember that the one who made heaven and earth is enthroned in the heavens, and he is the mighty warrior who has mercy upon his people and fights for his people. So the church should be in constant prayer for the Lord to stretch forth his hand and give her relief, all for his name's sake. It's all for the glory of his great name in the end. So let's return very quickly to the, eye, the idea of the eyes, the idea of where our eyes should be fixed. Remember here the psalm opens up, I lift my eyes upon you, and then it repeats eyes, eyes, eyes. The eyes are fixed upon God. We may glance at the troubles of the world. We may even have the temptation to gaze upon our own sinfulness instead of the mercy of God. But our eyes always need to come back to the one that gives us hope, whether it's a relief from those who oppress us, or our oppression within from our own sinfulness. Our, all, our eyes always go back to God, the one that gives the mercy. In short, you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Like the hymn writer says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And very quickly, over to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's, here's where the money is, verse 2. Looking to Jesus... The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look, look how closely verse 2 mirrors verse 1 of Psalm 123. Let me flip back there. Look how closely verse 2 of Hebrews 12 mirrors Psalm 123 verse 1. It says, look, looking to Jesus, look to Jesus. Begin verse one, it starts out, I lift my eyes. So there's the eyes again. Look, look to God, look to Jesus, look to the one who shows mercy. And then after that, in verse two, at the very end, it says, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Back to verse one, it says, you who are enthroned in the heavens. So there it is. There's the connection. The eyes are focused on the one who is enthroned in the heavens. In our New Testament context, it's Jesus. He's our advocate. He's the one that shows us mercy. We're united to him. He's promised to give us mercy. So when we sing this psalm, you can be reminded of the promise and the command of Hebrews 12 and the beauty and assurance that we have in Jesus Christ, who is indeed delight us to show us mercy. And some good news. That is some good news that we have as mercy. And that's why we're here today. We're here to celebrate that good news. We're here to set our eyes upon Jesus and we're here to worship him. So, let's sing to our God, asking for his mercy. Psalm 123. Psalm 123. I'm going to sing this to bless be the tie.
God. 